This is Stephen Bradley, and you're listening to the Power Chord Hour. There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, neither do I. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Power Chord Hour podcast, episode 6 to be exact. And uh, I'm your host, Anthony Merchant. Thank you so much for checking out another episode. This is this has been such a blast to do. I mean, I've been doing the radio show now this week, actually. I mean, if you're listening to this when it comes out, um, this this week, like the third week of uh, February, this, this week, uh, four years ago, was when we started doing the Power Chord Hour and I guess as we, I mean me, because uh, I'm I'm the uh, I'm basically everything of the Power Chord Hour. Whether it's putting the uh, playlist together, getting the interviews, you know, kind of choosing who I want to interview, writing the questions. Uh, I mean, putting everything together. Obviously, hosting this, I do it all. And uh, I've been doing it now for four years, doing the radio show. But the podcast is so fun, you know. It's such a it's such a different avenue. It's you know I, I feel like it's still connected to the Power Chord Hour radio show. Thus, you know, we still use the Power Chord Hour name because uh, I feel like it's still the same show, but a different side of it. So it's been really fun to do. You know, I'm, I'm still. It's kind of like a new challenge. You know, as you do the show after four years. I mean, I'm I'm by no means you know, the greatest broadcaster of all time, nor is the Power Chord Hour radio show like the greatest radio show of all time. But I think after a while, you do kind of find your footing a little more and, uh, you know, you get a little more used to it and everything. So doing the podcast is fun because it keeps me on my toes more, you know, it kind of, it's something different. I, I talk a whole lot more. I have to do, you know, kind of more prep on what I'd like to talk about and, uh, I mean, different subject matters, all that stuff. So, I mean, it's it's just been a total blast to do it. And I've said it the last few episodes, but really, I mean, episode six now, it's crazy to think we've had this many. And uh, I it's funny, we, we had another episode. I mean, we still had episode six, but uh, originally I did have a guest for this week. And uh, some things happened, and uh, I won't I won't get really into it, but uh, some some things happened around it, and you will not be hearing the original episode six or the uh, little bit that got recorded, but uh, we will we'll get some stuff situated, and I'm sure we'll have a guest on again very very soon. But uh, yeah, I, I, I hate to uh, kind of you know be vague about it, but I won't I won't throw anyone under the bus. Kind of a funny situation, kind of kind of. Uh, Kind of funny as long as you don't use people's names, we'll say. But uh, this will be the new episode six. It's not even like you'll notice that it's any different. But it is. uh, Me and the guest I had on were talking about something totally different. But uh, I wanted to get something out for you for this week. Wanted to keep uh, doing the podcast. Almost, I would like to keep doing it weekly. You know, I'd like to... uh, I know I've missed a few weeks here and there so far, but uh, I like to try to keep it weekly. So I wanted to come on, and uh, one of the things I was thinking about, you know, lately, including with the radio show, I, I try to look at like things that were released, you know, in certain months, and kind of whether it's new music or old music. And uh, I mean, two releases that stuck out to me that were released in uh, February, two different years, but back in the '90s. If we're going to time travel a little bit here. But uh, in February of 1994 and February of 1999, um, we got, in my opinion, like two of two of like the best albums of the 90s. I mean, they're they are up there as quintessential 90s records, I think. 
But kind of kind of what's interesting um, about them, and I think I think when I tell you the uh, two records that I'm talking about, you you probably will be like, oh yeah, like totally, like I get that. They're they're two records that are huge in like within their respective genres, and you know, like with people who listen to them. But they're not like they basically they basically have like what the replacements had, where like they never sold you know a lot of records. But what they had instead were these albums that kind of get that cult status, you know, that are like loved. Like, you know, a million people don't own that album, but, you know, 300,000 do. And every single person who ever bought it, you know, all 300,000 of those people love that album. You know, it's kind of one of those things. But uh, the two records, I mean, released in February 7th, uh, 1994, was Jawbreaker's 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, my second favorite Jawbreaker record, and a very, very important one, I think, to the band. I mean, one I think very well worth talking about. And uh, then a few years later, and a few years after Jawbreaker had broken up, I think at this point, Jets to Brazil would have been a band, probably had an album or two out. But uh, on uh, February 23rd, 1999, going up a few years, Jimmy Eat World's Clarity, my all-time favorite uh, Jimmy Eat World record, one of my just all-time favorite records, and uh, I mean, just so, you know, just such a good, good record. I mean, these are these are two albums that I feel like I could talk about forever, and, uh, you know, it, it's funny with them because they're, I feel like they're similar in many ways. Like, like if you like one of them, you probably like the other one. Like, there's a good chance. But at the same time, sonically, they don't sound alike. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, just, just look at the two album openers. I mean, from 24 Hour Revenge Therapy, The Boat Dreams from the Hill, uh, you know, versus uh, Jimmy Eat World with Table for Glasses. I mean, both great, great uh, album openers, but it's like so, so different. I mean, you have, I mean, Boat Dreams from the Hill, it just, it kicks you in the face a second, the second that, I mean, Adam Adam starts that record with that snare, that like snare fill or whatever you want to call it that he does. And I mean, they just go right into it with the power chords, you know, I mean, just talk about a trio who really, I mean, like the, you, you really listen to those, those uh, records and it's like, for being three musicians, I mean, they're some of those songs sound huge. I mean, they really, and I mean, obviously in the studio you can layer things and stuff. Like, I mean, going to the other Jawbreaker record, my favorite, uh, Dear You. I mean, if you listen to a song like Accident Prone, I mean, to me, when someone says Wall of Guitars, that's the song I think of the chorus specifically. You know, it's really that buildup. Because obviously that song is also, I mean, another great example of the quiet, you know, the quiet verses and the super heavy choruses, you know, just like, you know, like Nirvana or the Pixies or, you know, I mean, a very popular thing, I feel like in the 90s, late 80s, which I, I still love. I, I'm always a fool for that. I mean, I think that's part of what I really liked about Title Fight, too, when they came out is they had a lot of songs like that. Like, even though, you know, they're putting them out in, you know, just a few years ago, really, like 2011 and like 2014 and whatnot. Um, you know, what I mean, putting out those records that had that kind of sonically did the same thing that, that these albums did, like Jawbreaker and like like Jimmy Eat World, where, you know, they'd kind of you would kind of get teased, you know what I mean? Like, there's that build-up, you know something's coming, and then the chorus hits you, you know what I mean? Like, like I absolutely love that, I'm a fool for it, and uh, that's why I love I love that there's so many bands now who I think try to emulate 90s bands. I mean, there's just, there's constant. I feel like every week there's a new band that, uh, you know, is, is like, quote-unquote, like, a 90s throwback band to like but like the alternative stuff like hum and like like jawbreaker and like jimmy world and i mean kind of like the 
kind of the bands that weren't like selling millions and millions of records, but were huge, like I was saying earlier, in their in their respective genres. And I mean, I think I think uh, you know, twenty four hour revenge therapy and clarity, both of those, like like they never they never sold a ton. Neither of those records are even gold. Um, I'm sure Clarity has sold more than 24-Hour Revenge Therapy. I'm just assuming that, but I mean that I would say that would probably be be the case, because I mean like I don't think there are any real singles on 24-Hour Revenge Therapy. I mean like there's the quote-unquote singles. Like I think everyone would say Boxcar, but I mean that's more like that's like a fan favorite more than like a single. You know, like the the few Jawbreaker singles I think were all mostly on Dear You. But with Jimmy Eat World, I mean, like they did have a minor hit with Lucky Denver Mint. I think that was the only song on, uh, and that did rhyme. I must acknowledge that that rhymed. Um, but on Clarity, I think I think Lucky Denver Mint was the only uh, single off that. But I mean, it was a minor radio hit, and I mean, even to this day, like. It's far from, you know, the obviously the middle is like normally the one you hear. And then I'd say the second one you hear the most is like sweetness. But I have heard Lucky Denver Mint a few times on the radio, whereas Jawbreaker, the only time I've heard Jawbreaker on the radio is when I've listened to my own show. So, I mean, like, I'm sure Clarity has sold more, but it's like still, it did not sell a ton. And, I mean, you have to remember at the time, you know, Clarity was a major label record, but uh, Jimmy Eat World got dropped. After that one, I believe it was on Capitol. They were still on Capitol for that one, and uh, that was that was their last. I mean, before they ended up, you know, with Bleed American, they ended up on another major label. But I mean, they they got dropped after Clarity. So Clarity obviously did not sell well when it came out, and uh, it's it's just like I think Jawbreaker. I mean, Jawbreaker being, and you're seeing it now as Jawbreaker is reunited. But it's like, you know, Jawbreaker never a huge band when they were first around. I, I think from what I've heard. Um, you know, like I, I think they pulled in a decent amount. Like it's one of those things where it's like they did good for like a punk band in the Bay Area. You know, like like maybe they filled Gilman Street, but it's like you know they're probably not filling you know more than maybe a hundred kids a night in like other cities around the country. I think that was kind of the thing. I mean, I, they were broken up by the time I was. I mean, Twenty Four Hour Revenge Therapy came out when I was uh, two, so you know I, I obviously was not there. To uh, see the band the first time around, I had to catch them. I've caught them a few times on the reunion shows, which they just sound amazing. They absolutely sound great. But, um, you know, we're not huge the first time around. And I don't think 24-Hour Revenge Therapy was that big. I mean, it was big enough to get the a label's attention, um, you know, uh, Geffen Records, where they ended up putting Dear You out, which also ended up, you know, being on a major label. I think anyone who knows Jawbreaker, obviously, you know, famously or infamously, um, you know, basically broke up because of that. I mean, there, there were other, there were other factors, but it's like they signed to a major label. People were shitting on them before like any music even got released. Then dear, you got released. Fans hated it. And you know, I mean, whether, whether they didn't like the album itself or I'm sure, I think a lot of them just didn't like it because it was on a major label. Like, you know what I mean? Like dear, you is different enough. Like than 24 hour revenge therapy. Like it's not, it's not 24 hour revenge part two, but I don't think it's anything that, like, most people would go, oh, this is not good. Like, they were going in a great direction. I, I'm sure there's some people who genuinely didn't like the direction they went in. But I would say the majority of the people who didn't like Dear You were probably just the same people who were, like, sitting down or turning their backs when the band would play those songs live because it was on a major label. You know, it's just one of those – it's one of those things that we don't deal with present day. Like, I feel like the very – Probably the last band that really got that, you know, such a big thing in the 90s, like punk bands signing to major labels. But I really feel like probably the last band 
to really get the brunt of that was against me. I mean, you know, for years, that's all Laura Jane Grace, like in interviews, that's all she would have to talk about. I mean, the, you know, do you, do you feel like you sold out or did you, you know, like, how do you feel about the backlash of this or that? And like, you know, but I've also heard her say, like, it's funny because, you know, the major label, they got shit for that. But it's like they were saying even before that, like you, you go back even further and from going from no idea records to fat records, there were people who were like, oh, my God, like you guys are sellouts, you know, which is just absolutely funny. And, you know, I mean, now I guess that was probably like 15 years ago. You think like New Wave. I mean, it's crazy to think that New Wave's had to be out now since like 2005, 2006 got released. So, I mean, yeah, that was about 15 years ago that, that like, I feel like we had the last real, like, oh, these people are sellouts. You know what I mean? Like, this band's a sellout. They they signed to a major label, and they polished their sound, and now they have singles, and they're touring with the, you know, with these bands and stuff. But it's even, like, like you look at Jawbreaker, and it's even crazier, because I don't even think Jawbreaker was doing that. Like, I mean, some of the... And I'm and I'm not like justifying this because I love I love Against Me and I think New Wave is one of their best albums. So I mean I'm far from one of the people who, you know, are like, oh, you guys are sellouts. Which I I couldn't say that anyways because I didn't discover them until you know after New Wave came out and they were already on a major label. So I couldn't even say it if I wanted to. But like it's funny because if you even compare, you know, certain bands like that, like compare Jawbreaker to Against Me with like the whole sellout factor. It's like with Against Me. They got they got it because they're on a major label, but they were also getting shit because, you know, I mean, it was a polished album and, you know, they were they, I think they were touring with different bands like, you know, like I think they did a tour with like maybe Mastodon, which is like, yeah, I mean, they probably wouldn't have done that maybe five years prior, like just different things like that where like they, you know, like. Once again, I'm not I'm not justifying people like going like, oh, yeah, band sold out or this or that. But I'm saying like, you know, you start piling on these different reasons why people would say that about against me, where with Jawbreaker, they I feel like got it even worse than against me, probably, or at least just about as equally. And uh, they really didn't. I mean, besides signing to a major label, I don't think they ever really did like any crazy tours. Like, I mean, they toured with Nirvana and that's after, you know, that's when they inevitably got signed to a major label from uh, after touring with Nirvana but that's like it there was no real like I don't think there were any like tours that they did with like some band of the day that was also like on Geffen that wouldn't make sense you know what I mean like Jawbreaker wasn't going on tour with Deep Blue something or like the Gin Blossoms or something like that like you know nothing nothing out of the ordinary like they didn't all of a sudden stop like playing with with like lookout bands and like you know all those punk bands from the bay you know the the bay area from the late 80s early 90s like it's not like they stopped playing with j church and started playing with just major label bands or like anything like that like they just didn't do that like they just signed to a major label and i mean the record is like it's polished in a way. I guess it's funny, though, too, because this also has to do with when it was released, because I forget about this. You know, I mean, I listened to it years after it came out. But, you know, Dear You at the time was an expensive recording. And, you know, it did cost a lot of money. And it like it, it was at the time, I think, pretty well produced. But it's funny because you listen back now and it's like, I don't think it sounds terrible, but it's far from like. It's far from what you'd call state of the art. It's kind of the same thing. A lot, I think a lot of albums fall fall victim to their era. And not even that Dear You falls victim to that, because I don't think it sounds bad. I just think it's funny. It's funny when you think about it and you go, it was a it was like a big production and it cost, you know, like there was a big budget and stuff, where you look now and you go, 
how did that album cost like that much to you know record? But I think it's it's kind of like that though. I think this album suffers sonically too. But it's like I think Purple Rain is one of those where it's like with Princess Purple Rain at the time probably super expensive to make. Like those electronic drums and stuff were state of the art. It was probably very expensive to do. But those drums sound terrible now. You know what I mean? Like, and the songs are still great. It's also a testament to how you know good Prince is at those songs. That's still such a killer soundtrack. But it's like it's dated in a way where it's like, yeah, they probably spent all that money at the time, and it was probably great at that time. But you know, forty years later or thirty something years later, it you know it doesn't the sound doesn't hold up the same. It's like, oh yeah, that's pretty dated, and it's like you forget. But that cost a ton of money, including in a day now where you know, like I, I've talked to so many musicians and producers on here that you know talk about how you can record these albums in your bedroom. And it sounds, you know, I mean, it sounds amazing. Like, it's crazy what you can do. So it's funny kind of looking back at something like Jawbreaker's Dear You and going like, you know, that was an expensive record to make. And it's like, it, you know, there's nothing on it that crazy. I mean, even production-wise, it's like there's not like, like, I mean, there's there's some really good guitar tones. And like I was talking about earlier, with like, uh, you know, with Accident Prone, like the wall of sound with the guitars and the chorus. Like, I mean, there's like things like that where, you know, it's, like, pretty well produced. But they're not, like, adding, like, you know, all this extra stuff. There's not, like, extra session players coming in or, like, a string section. Like, nothing like that. So, you know, it's just kind of crazy to think of. Now, on 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, they did work with uh, Steve Albini, which, you know, I mean, very, very legendary producer. And uh, I like, I really do like what he did on it. I mean, Jawbreaker's one of my favorite bands, so maybe it's a no-brainer that it's, like, probably my favorite Steve Albini Um you know, produced record, but it's like, I really like it. Cause he did what he did really well. I think was he, he polished them enough where they sounded good, but they, they still sounded like jawbreaker. And I think like, I don't think he changed them too much. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like even like say Chesterfield King, that song could be on 24 hour revenge therapy. I feel like, and it would still fit in because I don't, I don't feel like they changed that much. I don't feel like Steve did too much with it to make them sound like, I mean, like, like I would say this, like on 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, to me, there's definitely, and I think it's a lot of the chord progressions that Blake uses, but it's like, to me, it sounds very much like Lookout, you know, like what was going on in the Bay Area and like with Lookout Records and early Green Day and stuff. I mean, by 1994, I mean, that would like, like Dookie would have been out, um, it's like around Dookie, but even like the Lookout era of Green Day, like... Like, I think Jawbreaker sounds most similar. And, and I don't mean it like they sound like Green Day on 24-Hour Revenge Therapy. But if there's, a, there, if there's a record where I would go, they sound, you know, like they both sound like that. They have that Bay Area sound. They're very similar. I would, I would say that. I mean, including Dookie and 24-Hour Revenge, which uh, I, I can't think of his last name. Rob Cav, like Rob Cavallero. I mean, very, very famous producer. But uh, it's funny because as I say that, you know, he produced uh, – he produced Green Day's Dookie, and then he produced Jawbreaker's Dear You, you know, the following Jawbreaker record. But I think they sound less like Green Day on Dear You, where I feel like 24-Hour Revenge, once again, I hate even saying that they sound like them, but I just feel like that's when they most, you know, both of them kind of had that, which now you look back and go, that Bay Area punk sound, you know, or the Lookout, you know, also that, like the Lookout Records sound. Because that's the other thing, like with Green Day, like people who have never who have never heard the other bands that were like on lookout records at the time. Like you listen to Dookie and it's like, I mean, I love Dookie and I'm, you know, I, it makes sense that it sold so many damn records, 
But like the interesting thing about Green Days is like what they were doing wasn't totally different from what all the other lookout bands were doing. You know what I mean? Like like you look at like what the queers were doing or the Mr. T experience, you know, like there's a lot of other lookout bands at the time who I feel like were doing the same thing, but never even got a shred of that success. You know, like even even half of, you know, what Green Day did. Same with like Screeching Weasel. I mean, Screeching Weasel kind of the forefathers, you know, kind of paved the way for bands like Green Day and even them like you know, they did okay. I mean, they did well. I shouldn't even say okay. They did good for a punk band, but it's like never – it's kind of weird how Green Day was really the only one from that, like, lookout, you know, roster to really hit it big like that when there's so many other bands who are doing that as well, you know, or doing their own style of it. But, uh, you know, I definitely think there was an East Bay sound. You know, it would be East Bay, I believe, but just that whole Bay Area, you know, in the in the, like – kind of late 80s early 90s just really really cool and I don't feel like people talk about it enough or think about it you know you start thinking about the bands in it I think part of it's like that like Green Day is just so big that you don't I feel like they don't get attached to things like that like you kind of look back and just go oh Green Day's Dookie or whatever but you don't go like that band just blew up and they were but they were playing Gilman Street with like Crimp Shine and uh I guess Op Ivy was probably broken up by then but you know I know like all of them loved Op Ivy and went and saw them when they were playing, you know, the lookouts that uh, Trey Cool played in when he was a little kid and he was like 12, kind of like Tommy Stinson with the replacements. You know, like there, there's a specific sound from that time in that area. And I think people kind of forget that. But I would say, I mean, Dookie is a great defining one. And I also think 24 hour revenge therapy. I think this is another really good one of like, you know, that sound in that place, which is also kind of funny because then you listen to the lyrics and it's like, obviously, you know, there's kind of a love-hate relationship there with Jawbreaker and the scene. You know, I mean, the Boxcar, I mean, there's, I mean, pick a song. I mean, Boxcar is the most, you know, like, obviously, like, the blatantly most obvious one of, like, the punk scene and kind of the distaste for it. But, I mean, there's so many songs on there that, you know, just those great snotty lyrics that, you know, Blake writes so well that, you know, is just kind of kind of like a fuck you to the scene and, you know, the people in it that he didn't like. And, you know, and I'm sure that like with Jawbreaker, once again, maybe they weren't huge at the time, but I feel like they were probably respected like their peers and stuff. And they're just one of those they were they're one of those like bands who, you know, as far as the scene went, I mean, we're doing we're doing what was going on so well, but they didn't want to play the game. I don't think they were ever one to play the game or play into trends and stuff. So it's like, you know, I, I think I think they probably rubbed other bands the wrong way. Because basically because they had integrity and they wanted to do their own thing. You know, I don't think they ever like conformed to any of that stuff. You know, they played the shows, they played a lot of the same venues. And there were bands that I mean, obviously mutual friends and stuff. Like not like every every band hated them or anything. But I just mean like it's funny because as I'm saying that, like they really do have such a defining sound, you know, or so so important to that like East Bay sound, yet I don't feel like they ever want to be connected to a scene. So it's kind of funny to connect them to a scene, but you know, That's just how it goes. They write great songs. You know, it's not my fault they wrote such a classic. And, you know, while while Dear You is my favorite Jawbreaker record, 24-Hour Revenge Therapy to me is is when they really kind of solidified being the punk band that we, like, know and love now. Like, the fact that we wanted them to reunite all these years later, and they could, and that people were waiting for them to reunite. And I've always said this. I mean, Jawbreaker is one of my all-time favorite bands. But if they ever, if they only ever released Unfun and Bivouac, um, I I would not, I wouldn't look at them the same way, and I don't feel like other people would. I, I would look at them as a band, like a 90s punk band who had a couple, you know, songs I really like. 
because on those first two records, it's like, I mean, there's good songs on there, but that's the thing. It's There's good songs. I don't feel like those records coherently are like great, great records. And I don't think they're even, they're not even that bad. I just think they were more of the same, basically. They're more of the same of what was going on at the time. And I think they found their real sound. Like the reason why we love Jawbreaker now is from the last two records. I think it's a band who had time to find their sound, become more unique. And, you know, I think that's where, like, it shows up in songs on the first two records. Like, don't get me wrong, there's some good songs there, but it's like they finally came into their own, I think, on 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, you know. It's kind of crazy to think about, too, because obviously I had 24-Hour Revenge, then we had Dear You, but it's so interesting to think of where they would have went next, you know. I mean, they just kept evolving, and it's like, where would that Jawbreaker sound have went after Dear You, you know. I mean, I feel like that's easy to do with most bands who break up, but... You know, Jawbreaker is an interesting one because there is a back catalog. I mean, there's music to go back and check out, but it's also not huge. It's still like, like you know, I really feel like I said, you know, they really came to their own on those last two records. So you kind of go, there's so much more they could have done. You know, like, I mean, like with Jimmy Eat World, Jimmy Eat World keeps going and you see where they evolve. And, you know, we've seen where they've went and where they've went back to and all those things. But with Jawbreaker, we never really got that chance. You know, like after Dear You, it's like, I mean... You could you could probably say like Jets to Brazil like maybe Jawbreaker would have sounded like that you know maybe they just the next album would have maybe sounded like that but it's like you you still kind of do that what could have been you know and I, I think Jawbreaker has teased since they've reunited I think they've they've said that they've like written some songs I mean who knows I don't think there's any real announcements for new music but I mean I would love to see I would love to see what they put out present day I mean I, I think I think they could probably still write some really good songs I think all those guys have played in other bands and uh, have done really well and done a lot of cool stuff you know after like actually I didn't even realize and I love Reviver but I didn't even realized that uh, Jawbreaker's bass player Chris played a uh, bass on I forget what release it was I think it was in 2016. Um, one of Reviver's albums, but like I, I thought it was awesome. Like I mean, those all those guys in Jawbreaker have went on and done some really rad stuff after Jawbreaker. But I mean, the Jawbreaker is the best. I mean, of everything they've done, it's like that's that band is just so good. You know what I mean? It's the reason why all these years later, twenty six years later, I'm sitting here talking about that record. You know, there's a reason that it's worth going back and finding these albums. You know, from when I was way too young. You know what I mean? Like a two year old. Like I didn't know who Jawbreaker was. So it's like, you know, they put out good stuff. They put out things worth going back and uh, hearing, you know, and and really finding. And I think also, I mean, Jawbreaker is a punk band. They're also at times kind of a pop punk band. But it's like the the cool thing about 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, because I think they kind of found their own sound, it's not – it changes. You know what I mean? Like there's different things in there. Like, I mean, probably one of the only punk records I've ever heard that has, you know, a Jack Kerouac sample in it. Like, you know, things like that. And I mean, actually references Jack Kerouac multiple times. I guess there are punk bands who, who you know, mention Kerouac. That, that's not super uncommon punk, but you don't really hear samplings of like his spoken word and stuff. Like, I think that's the other thing that kind of set Jawbreaker aside is like, they were all kind of educated guys like, you know, they all I don't know. I can't remember if they met in college, but they all went to college together. They were all, you know, I mean, all college educated. I know Blake was a teacher at times, um, you know, like throughout his life. I know he reads a lot. I mean, if you go see them live, even the stage banter in between, I mean, some of the literary references he makes and stuff like, you know, 
he he's a smart guy. He you know he knows his stuff, and I, I think that's the other thing that kind of sets them aside. And the other thing I kind of get from it too is I was reading I was reading yesterday, getting ready to uh, do this podcast, a uh, interview that all three of them did last year for the 25th anniversary of 24 Hour Revenge, and you kind of get this thing of like. At that point, you know, they were a band for a while, and they were by no means old guys, but, you know, I think at that point they were kind of mid to late 20s, and I think that was the thing is I think that's the other part of it is is they kind of talked about that in the uh, interview, specifically Blake, but just kind of the kind of that in-between of we're not, you know, we don't really fit in with the really, really young crowd, you know, the 18, 19-year-olds, but we also don't fit in with, like, you know, the really old crowd, you know what I mean? Like they, they also weren't like in their forties, you know, they were still young guys, but they were kind of in that in between. And I think that's the other reason why this is so good. You know, they didn't really have a home in that sense. You know, they weren't, they probably did feel kind of alienated from the younger bands. They also didn't, you know, feel the same connection with the older ones. And I think that's part of that as well. You know, it's a, it's a combination of being a band for a while and finding your sound and then kind of that attitude, you know, bleeding into it, you know, the, the other, the other politics and music that aren't just music, you know, kind of bleeding into it, like scene politics and things like that. And I mean, once again, it's Blake's writing as well, and you can hear it in that. I mean, the sarcasm in his lyrics. I mean, just look at Boxcar. I mean, like, you know, you're not punk, and I'm telling everyone. Like, I mean, that's what a way to open a song. Like, that grabs your attention the second you listen to it. Like, the first time you hear that song, like, you're hooked because, like, that's what a great way to grab your attention, you know, which also, like I said, kind of going from, I think, being educated guys and kind of understanding that too, you know, that idea of, like, grabbing – grabbing one's attention in writing, you know, whether it be music or in literature, you know, and whether it be someone reading that, you know, if you were reading the liner notes, that kind of catches you, but it also catches you if someone says it, you know, including the way that Blake's saying it, you know, I mean, just so good with his voice too. I think, I think Steve has him really good in the mix on that record where like, I think that's the thing I like about it is nothing, the way it's mixed is I don't feel like anything stands out more than anything else. Like it's almost I, I feel like everything's kind of mixed at the same spot, meaning like, you know, the bass doesn't overrule, you know, or like drown out the guitar, the car, the not the car, the guitar, you know, doesn't really drown out the drums, you know, like nothing like that. And then I don't feel like the vocals are like overpowering everything. You know what I mean? It's not an album where like the vocals overpower the music. I feel like it's all kind of in this it's all kind of at the same spot and sounds really good. Nothing overpowers it, each other, and it just sounds like a strong trio, just playing really, really well together. And, I mean, I, I, think it, I think it was mixed well. I think it was produced well. You know, I mean, Steve Albini obviously knows what he's doing. But, uh, yeah, easily easily my favorite Steve Albini-produced record. I mean, In Utero is probably one of my probably like top five. But uh, I gotta, I gotta go with Twenty Four Hour Revenge. Is my favorite thing he's ever produced, and like I like his music. I, I like like some shellac and stuff. I'm not, I'm not a huge. I've, I've never dwelled into everything he's done, but you know, I, I like the guy enough. He, uh, he's just one of those guys where he rubs people the wrong way. But I think he just got it going, and it's like that's just who he is. There's something about Illinois. I mean, because he. I mean, it's like Ben Weasel. I mean, Ben Weasel's the same way. I mean, I love Screeching Weasel, and it's like Ben Weasel's just a guy where it's like I don't get when people get upset about some of the – like when he'll say things, like just – because normally Ben Weasel will just say something very Ben Weasley, and it's like I don't get how people have the reaction because like – but that that's what he's doing because he knows he's good at it. You know what I mean? Like it's it's kind of the same thing with Steve Albini. Like if you listen to like an interview with him, like he was in the Jawbreaker documentary, Don't Break Down for – I don't know, collectively, he was probably only in it for like a minute or two. 
but it's like you know he would make little smart ass jokes and stuff like oh like oh yeah I got the call to you know like produce Jawbreaker and I thought they were that band Jawbox you know like th- you know just things like that and it's like but you have to expect that from him you know that's kind of the charm of him and it's kind of the same thing with Ben Weasel you know that like that sharp tongue of his is kind of you know part of his charm it's like if you let it rub you the wrong way you know that's one thing but it's like you kind of know that's what he's going to be like you know that's it's Steve Albini or you know it's it's Ben Weasel it's like that's just kind of how they are and Blake's kind of that way too in a different I think in a different way than Ben Weasel is or even even Steve Albini for that for that uh, matter I think kind of different but also kind of that like I think just sharp wit and kind of also has a dry sense of humor that I think can go like like I was saying earlier with like his stage banter like the way the jawbreaker stage banter that he has a lot of times is like it, it kind of takes you a second. It's like if you if you take it if you take it too literal, or you like listen to it, you just think he's really really dry for like no reason. It's just you know someone talking really dry. It's just it's almost like nonsense. You kind of look at him like what's wrong with this guy? But then you kind of realize like oh no like that's him like that's the humor. It's like oh okay like no you like him. It's like that's his personality you know. And I, I think it comes out of the music as well with a jawbreaker really all those guys too i think i think uh most people who have that kind of like at you know attitude i guess that it normally comes out of their music as well i feel like i feel like a lot of those bands you know i, I think the members you end up getting attached the members become attached to the music you know it's not just a band of faceless people you know and i do think jawbreaker is one of those you know even as just a trio like i think blake schwarzenbach um, you know, specifically, probably also for his lyrics. I mean, just one of the greatest lyricists. You know, I, I think, I think he's looked at just just as lovingly as people look at Jawbreaker. You know, it's not like they just look at Jawbreaker. They look at the members. They appreciate them. You know, they appreciate what they do. It's not it's not just a band. I feel like you know, and it goes back to like I was saying. You know, Twenty Four Hour Revenge Therapy, not a gold record. You know, I don't know what it sold, but I'm sure I'm sure to this day it's easily sold under a hundred thousand records. You know, which is sad. It would be great if it sold more, but I mean, that's the case. But with that said, it is a cult classic. I mean, people love that album. You know, it's one of those things too, where it's like there's so many albums from 1994 that sold way more than Jawbreaker that uh, you, if you went to the record store now, you just couldn't find. You would not find it, or if you did, you might find like used copy. Whereas Jawbreaker with 24 Hour Revenge Therapy, that thing's still impressed. People are still buying it. You know, it's not. It's not a gold record, but it's like people appreciate it and people still love it. And it's that it's that difference. It really is. I mean, it's it's the replacements versus. I mean, um, I'm, I mean, really, if you even just thinking of the era of the replacements, I mean, you could even just take like a hair band for that matter. And it's like it's the difference between a hair metal band in the '80s who, at the time, you know, got exposure on MTV. A bunch of interviews, you know, sold millions of records, you know, had a couple radio hits and were really big who, you know, 10, 15 years later either were broken up and no one remembers or were still going and went from playing like arenas to like playing, you know, half empty like dive bars and like sea market places, you know, like small towns or like B cities, like things like that. Whereas you have a band like The Replacements who at that same time where that, you know, where a hair metal band was like doing all that, you know, The Replacements weren't making the same kind of money. They weren't really selling the records. But 10, 15 years later, people love them more and they're talked about lovingly. They're still talked about like all these bands we're influenced by that, you know, all the bands that are coming out are talking about how they're influenced by them. 
you know, they become a cult classic. It becomes really cool to like them. You know, and then they get back together too, and then they start playing bigger places than they did the first time around. And Jawbreaker has more of that. You know, I, I do. I think that's a very real thing in music. You know, there's there's two, and you're lucky to get either one because some bands get neither. But there there are kind of two forms of like success. There's like the longevity of it where it doesn't come right away. It may never. It may never come in a huge bulk, meaning, you know, you may never sell all those records. You may never be the biggest, you know, name in your genre. But throughout the years, you're remembered. You know, people love it. You know, people love your albums. You're still talked about. You know, people still buy them. You know, once again, even if they don't go gold, it's like they're still steadily being sold. You can find them in record stores. You know, they become, they really do. They become the cool records, you know, that people play when you go into a record store or, you know, talk about as their favorite albums. You know, people love, people love like 24 hour revenge therapy, where, like I'm saying, there's so many albums from 1994 that probably sold a shit ton that the people who bought them hardly remember them. You know, they don't listen to them anymore. They don't remember the last time they listened to them. And who knows? There's a lot of people, too, who kind of laugh at the, you know what I mean, who would look back at what they were listening to in 1994 and laugh, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I was listening to that. Where with 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, it's like, no, people aren't embarrassed. You know what I mean? Like, no one's embarrassed in that. People, that that's like, that's that's like credit, man. Like, if you meet someone who, like, was listening to when it came out like actually knew jawbreaker when jawbreaker was a band the first time that's amazing you know what i mean like it's just there's such a difference in that you know which and i feel like bands are fortunate for either i mean any form of success is great but there are there's there's the one where you kind of get it all in one sitting and it doesn't last and then there's another one where you never really become that household name but you you stay, you know what I mean? You you are remembered, like and and you and you also still get credit for it, you know. I mean, like Jawbreaker now, like I mean, getting back together, people care and people are coming to shows and you know they're buying the merch and they're buying when they reissue the stuff on vinyl. So it's like you know they are they are getting their due. It's maybe a little later, but I feel like most most cult classic records are that way. You know, Jawbreaker was more. I mean, it was always like that. You know, the fans loved them. And, you know, I don't I don't know that they were, they were never really, I think, critics, critic darlings. But I don't think they got terrible, terrible reviews for the most part. Uh, you know, and the same with the replacements where it's like, you know, fan, you know, music fans loved them. Critics loved them. It was just as far as selling records and the mainstream went, you know, that was just a different story. And it's kind of the same thing with Jawbreaker. You know, I, f- I feel like as far as punk goes, I mean, they're one of the most influential bands in 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, one of the most, I would say, influential punk records of the 90s. I mean, whether it's the Lawrence Arms, whether it's Banner Pilot, I mean, I mean just a couple off the top of my head. I mean, basically every band that's been signed to Fat Sense I mean, there's there's just so many bands that are just like, yeah, like that, you know, Jawbreaker or specifically 24-Hour Revenge Therapy is like what got me writing music. You know, I mean, constantly, there are constantly punk bands whose lyrics are being compared to Blake's. I mean, that's that's like a classic one. When a, when a punk band is like starting and they sound anything like Jawbreaker or sound like they're writing like Jawbreaker, I mean, right away they get compared to Blake, you know, normally specifically like 24-Hour Revenge Therapy. Um, I mean, other like Alkaline Trio. I mean, Alkaline Trio came out a few years later, and I, I think they've said it before. You probably wouldn't have them without Jawbreaker. You know, like you would not have Alkaline Trio without them. It's just it just wouldn't be possible. You know, so it's it's one of those things like you don't get your dues at the time, which I'm sure that has to be bittersweet because it's like 
you know, you, it, it would also be nice at the time. Like, I'm sure it's great to get this, this like, delayed gratification that, like, you know, Jawbreaker is getting now. But at the same time, I'm sure it would have been nice to be able to, you know, continue making music for a living and, you know, not not having to – I think all those guys have had, you know, different day jobs and stuff. You know, none of the guys in Jawbreaker ever made enough to be, like, you know, full-time musicians again after that. But, you know, it's like now they're kind of getting it. But it, it does suck that it takes so long. I mean, it's great that it's happening. I think it's great that you get your dues anyways, you know, that you're just getting them because you deserve them. But I also get that. It's like it's also unfortunate that it couldn't happen when they were banned, you know, the first time around. But, you know, I, I think 24-Hour Revenge Therapy is definitely that. It's, it's a successful album, not in the sense that it sold, you know, an ungodly amount. But it was a very successful record in that, I mean, people are still talking about it. it it's influenced so many people in the punk genre and, I mean, so many other genres too. And, you know, is is I think it's just going to be loved more and more as time goes on, you know. It, same with Dear You and, I mean, just Jawbreaker as a whole, you know. Because, I mean, we're, you know, this month, um, you know, February 2020 marks the 26th anniversary of 24-Hour Revenge Therapy coming out. And, you know, that many years later, I mean, the album's almost, you know, four years shy of 30 now. And I think it sounds timeless. I, I think it's a classic, you know, and I, I, I don't see me listening to it less. Actually, throughout the years, I find myself listening to it more and more, to be quite honest. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure that will continue but just a huge influence on so many bands, so many artists, and just, you know, people as a whole. Like, it's just such a great record, you know. And and talking about, talking about you know, the, the difference in similarities as well, like with Clarity, you know, that was – it's also that. You know, Jimmy Eat World's an interesting one too, like talking about the backlash of, like, major labels. Like, I don't think Jimmy Eat World got any of that because – Though part of part of the smart thing I think they had is they've basically always been on major labels. They re- they released a few things um, beforehand, like I think by themselves. Um, I think they were like self released or maybe like on some small like indie Arizona labels. But like I think everything they've put out just about has been on on a major label. So it's like they kind of came from that scene, but it's like I think it was a few years later. And I mean I also don't know I don't know if they came from like the punk scene as much as like the, I I don't think at the time they were calling it the emo scene, but you know what I mean? Like they weren't coming from such, I think a holier than thou scene as like jawbreaker may have been, but I don't think they ever got the crap for being on a major label. You know, it was, it was never a thing, which is just unfortunate because there's so many hardships that like, you know, certain bands like jawbreaker had from signing to a major label that ended up hurting the band that other bands just didn't have. You know, I mean, no one, no one was boycotting Jimmy Eat World because Clarity was on a major label. I mean, you know, Static Prevails was on one as well. But, you know, no, one, I don't think anyone in Arizona was like, oh, that band who had a demo tape, how dare they be signed to Capitol Records. You know, I don't, I don't think they really dealt with that, um, you know, at, at all really. But the other, you know, the other interesting thing, I think something very similar to 24-Hour Revenge and with Clarity is – Neither of them are the band's debut records. You know, this is not Jimmy World's first record, and that was not uh, Jawbreaker's first record. But I think it's their first records where they get their sound, where I, I think it really is a band that finally finds their sound. Like, Static Prevails is a good record, and, you know, I'll go back to it and listen to it, but I'll normally pick out songs. You know, it's one of those things, kind of like with Jawbreaker, like I was saying with their first two records. I They're not bad, but I go back and I'll listen to certain songs off it. I'll listen to, like, four or five songs and then not really listen to the rest of it. Whereas with Clarity, I want to listen to the whole damn thing. I mean, that that whole record front to back is amazing. 
because it is. It's a it's a young band who's really finding their sound and still have that energy and that hunger for it. You know, it's their second album on a major label. And I think, you know, they were definitely, you know, they were going for it. But at the same time, I think they were going for it, but they were going for what they wanted. You know, I, I think there's songs on there that, that you know, could be played on the radio as they did, like Lucky Denver Mint. But there's a lot of stuff on there that, you know, is not probably not what you would do if you were trying to make, you know, the most commercially viable record, you know, in 1999, which more respect to them because the longevity of it, you know, like with 24 hour revenge is it's not a record being made to sell, you know, 10 million copies. And I'm sure they would have been happy if they did, but that's, that wasn't the intentions with making it. So when it came out, maybe it didn't sell all those records then, but people still, I mean, clarity is like quintessential, you know, and once again, they really weren't using the word emo then. And when they did, it was like a four letter word. You know, it's funny to think that I really still don't love the term emo, but I use it because I mean, you know, people, it's gotten to a point now where people use it and it's not like derogatory or demeaning or anything. So it's like, you know, I mean, it, it, it is a genre, but it's funny to think of because it's the same thing with pop punk. You know, there's so many bands who Newfound Glory being one of them. And, uh, you know, I mean, they, they embrace the pop punk label, which which I think like that's there's nothing wrong with that. They're a pop punk band. But, um, you know, you think about when they started, like in the early 2000s, they didn't like being called pop punk. There's there's interviews out there like most bands didn't like that. Like, it's funny. Drive through records is like, I mean, my all time favorite label. And I mean, quintessential pop punk label. But when they were like active and putting things out, those bands didn't want to be called pop punk. That was like that was a demeaning thing. Like when people said that, same with emo, like that was not a lovable thing, not a term of endearment. Like, you know, that's that's so that's really like more modern. You know, pop punk, it kind of happened to that. I feel like early 2010s and then a few years later around like probably like 2014, uh, emo kind of became that where it was like bands wanted to be called that you know they kind of started embracing it but I mean you think like 10 years prior to that like 2004 no one wanted to be called emo or pop punk like those were those were not nice like I said those not really terms of endearment you know so it's kind of funny how that uh, changes through the years but Jimmy World's another one with like clarity um, part of why I love it so much is that you really can't pinpoint, I mean, obviously emo is, it, it's like I was saying, you know, called like the quintessential emo record, but it's funny because their, their influences on it are so like they, they're all over the map in a really good way. Like it's hard to pinpoint exactly what you would call that as a genre, including at the time. I mean, now we call it emo, you know, it's a, it's a 20 year old record and you know, it's, it's, it's had its labels put on it for better or worse. But at the time when it comes out, if you listen to it, you're like, what would you call this? I mean, sure, there's songs that are kind of like, you know, there's a few kind of straight up, more straight up pop punk songs or punk songs. But then there's, you know, real, like I said, the opening track table for Glasses. Like, it's a very slow song. It has a buildup, but never gets really heavy. You know, it's very, it's very, uh, you know, it's slow. I mean, it is kind of ballady in a way. It's kind of melancholy as well. Like it's it's and then to go into Lucky Denver Mint like that, you know, it's just it's amazing. But those dynamics, too, like I think that's part of why, because not only would people probably call it the quintessential emo album of all time. Me personally, I think part of why I love it so much. That's the number one night drive record. Like if you're looking for a record to listen to while you're driving at night, like there's no better album. No album was made 
to be a better night drive record than that one. Like, I don't know that they set out to do that, and I would like to ask them that someday. Like, any of the guys in Jimmy Eat World, I'd love to ask them that. But it's like, did you did you set out to make such a good record to drive around at night and listen to? Because it really is. Like, that album sounds good any time of the year, any time of the day. But driving around when it's dark out, basically clarity gets better after 9 p.m. Like if you're behind the wheel and it's past 9 p.m., that's when clarity sounds best. Like I love to travel, and that's that's the album you listen to at night. Like there's there's just certain records. Um, Saves the Day Through Being Cool does it for me too for a night drive. That one kind of gets you more pumped up though. I like that one for like driving down the interstate fast at night, whereas like clarity – you could be doing that, but you could also just be going down back winding country roads at night. I mean, you could be driving anywhere at night. And it's like there's just an ambiance and just this vibe of the album that that's really it, it doesn't matter if the song is more ballady, if it's like an alternative rock song, if it's a punk song, you know, it doesn't matter what even an electronic song. I mean, there's so much programming on that uh, on that record just sounds amazing, you know, which I would. I would say I think partly Jimmy World because I think they've continued it through the years, but I would also say it's probably partly, uh, you know, in in credit to Mark Trombino, the producer of that one. I think he probably had a, a good amount to do with that. I know he uh, is credited for some of the programming and sequencing on it, you know, so he probably knew. Just assuming too, because I mean that wasn't his first rodeo. You know, he'd produced some other bands before them, but uh, with Jimmy World still being a younger band, I'm sure he had like. Like, I don't know how much he had in that, but, like, for, like, Goodbye Sky Harbor, like, I, I wonder with things like that, like, how much that, like, outro, like, you know, was the band's idea versus what he was doing, you know, like, how much of that Mark Trombino put together. Like, I mean, that it's a very interesting album. Like, I love talking to producers, and Mark Trombino would be amazing to talk to, specifically for Clarity, because there's just so much going on on that record, you know. So I think that would be really cool to talk to him about that. Like, I mean, who – because some of the guys in Jimmy Eat World did the programming and sequencing as well, but he also did, and I just wonder how much, you know, Mark really did. I mean, because he, he produced so many other amazing albums too. And, uh, I mean, one of he's another one, just one of the best producers out there. And uh, I, I I think he really he really shined on clarity. I think that's that's one we really got to give credit to the producer. And I mean, he worked with Jimmy Eat World on I mean most of their records. I mean, he's produced as far as Jimmy Eat World goes. Before Clarity, he produced Static Prevails. Um, he produced Futures, Bleed American, Invented. I mean, he's really he hasn't produced like the last two records, and he didn't produce like Chase This Light. So of all Jimmy Eat World's now been a band for twenty something years. And Mark Trombino's produced, like, I'd say 70% of their records. You know what I mean? So it's like he is kind of, in a way, almost like an unofficial member of the band, you know, or like the the unofficial, like, fifth member of Jimmy Eat World. And uh, I, I just think I think that, can, you know, with, with a band who's really finding their sound was just, I mean, it was a recipe for success. You know, I mean, clarity front to back is just amazing. And I do. I think I think it's... Now this is this is where I think Twenty Four Hour Revenge kind of differs from Clarity. Like Twenty Four Hour Revenge does some different things, but it's like overall, I I think there's there's like a certain a certain tone of the album, and a lot of the songs, including the songs that I love, like the up tempo punk songs, do sound similar. I mean, there's a, there's a few songs on Twenty Four Hour Revenge Therapy that if you put them back to back, you know, you kind of go like, oh, that's almost the same song. You know, what I mean. 
there I mean Jinx removing and boat dreams from the hill you know are to, which I think I think Chris joked about it in that interview I was uh, reading with them from last year about the record but I think he said that it's like you you can't play those two songs together like I think they said playing it live it's like they'll never play boat dreams from the hill next to Jinx removing because musically they're the same song you know I mean different lyrics but it's like they're both fast they're both like the same I think they're both in G major like they're both about the same tempo like the only real difference is the lyrics so like I think that's the difference where I think on 24 hour revenge therapy the songs you know not that they all sound identical but it's like you know they they still kind of keep to a certain you know to a certain sound there whereas I feel like on clarity job or not jawbreaker Jimmy world you know they kind of go the other way and I feel like they they try out different things like it's not the same band from static prevails you know, it's it's not the same band at all. I think this is a band who really found their sound in between, wrote even better songs, and I think really did push themselves. I mean, they did some stuff on there. I mean, same, same with the programming and stuff like that. It's like there's songs that are more punk on there, but it's like then they're also doing things with like, you know, that, that did kind of sound not electronica, you know, not like the songs sound electronica, but it's like they're electric, you know, electronic elements to the songs you know, electric drums or programmed drums and stuff like just different, different things like that. Like, you know, sampling of things like things that, that your normal punk band probably wouldn't do, you know, thus, thus it kind of got its own, own thing and is now credited as like, you know, bringing emo to the mainstream or making it what it is, you know, up there with like something to write home about by the get up kids. It's just one of those records. And, you know, it's, it's from taking chances. I think, you know, had they, had they just done Static Prevails, like if they just did those songs, like more like just a four-piece band with like, you know, electric guitars and bass, it's like it, it just, you know, it probably could have been good, but it would have been the same record. Like there's a few just straight up rockers on that one, you know, like Blister and 10, like those those two jump out, like and they're two of like my favorite songs on the album. But it's like if all the songs sounded like that, I don't think it would make for as good of a record. You know, I think what makes it so good is the variety is, is that you know it changes up and that it's very different and i would think mark trombino probably had a lot to do with that too you know because as a young band i'm sure i'm sure jimmy world had less confidence than they do now you know they can like on this last record they did they did five 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 and it sounds nothing like jimmy world it's so different and it sounds great i mean it's a great song and i think it, it's probably one of the most popular one off their last record but, you know, I think at this point, they're also these guys, these guys know what they're doing. You know, I, I don't think they're afraid to try different things. And but I think that starts at clarity. You know, they, they had to start somewhere with that. And I think they have a band who's never been afraid to take chances. But that starts somewhere. And I think it starts with clarity. You know, they did that on clarity and it became such, you know, I mean, absolutely such a success. Most people will tell you. Now, there's two people, and I guess there's a third, because I have, like, one friend who says Bleed American is, is his favorite Jimmy Eat World record, and fair enough, that's a great record, but just about everyone you're ever going to meet who's a Jimmy Eat World fan, you know, or who likes them more than just their singles, it's either going to be Clarity or Future. That's that's Those are the two that are everyone's favorite. I like Futures, but Futures doesn't have that same it, – it lacks, it lacks what Clarity has. You know, it, it has – it kind of has an ambiance. I, I think also a similarity, another great like night drive record. But Jimmy Eat World's also they're the kings of that. Like if you want a band to put on when you're driving late at night, it's Jimmy Eat World. Like 
there's they're they're a good excuse just to go drive. Even if you have nowhere to go to, they're just like Jimmy Eat World's an excuse to just get in your car and drive at night and just listen to Jimmy Eat World while you drive. Like that's that that's an excuse enough. Putting clarity on is an excuse enough to drive around at night, you know. But I I, I mean that like in such a great way. Like I think that's a powerful thing to be that kind of band that it's like you're perfect for a certain mood. You know, I think most bands would kill for something like that. And I mean, Jimmy world just did it with clarity. I mean, I I love all their records. There's good songs on all their albums, but it's like clarity is just the one it's like something about it is just absolutely amazing. And I I think it's variety. I think variety is, uh, is like really, it does it, it, it does it favors. There's sometimes there's bands kind of go out their comfort zones and it doesn't do them any favors. You kind of you see their weak points, and then it's like it, it's it's trial and error, but it's recorded. You know, you kind of learn from that with the band Strong Suits. Are you go, well, you know, like like if Clarity came out not good, you might go, oh, they were better on Static Prevails. Like they were better as just you know a pop punk band. Like they were better not doing this kind of electronic stuff or like this programming and all that, or like a sixteen minute you know like outro. Like they were better just more as a pop punk band, whereas it wasn't like that. They ended up ended up being very successful, and I, I think everyone kind of liked where they were going. I think very very few people are going to tell you that Jimmy Eat World were only good before Clarity. You know, like like with Jawbreaker, there are some people who would probably tell you that uh, you know nothing nothing after Bivouac was good or nothing after Twenty Four Hour Revenge Therapy was good because there are still some people who don't like Dear You, but I think most people like Dear You now. I mean, my absolute favorite uh, Jawbreaker record, one of my favorite records of the '90s. But um, you know, Jimmy Eat World, I don't think they have that so much. I think most people would agree it's like, yeah, they just got better, like Clarity and On. You know, I mean, the earlier stuff is good, but it's like most people want to hear Clarity and On. Where Jawbreaker, you got people in different places. You know, I mean, same with the replacements. I mean. They're, they don't have one album that everyone kind of says. You know, like with Jimmy Eat World, it's Clarity or Futures, but I would say more Clarity. I mean, you do get people who like Futures, but I would even say that I've I've met more people who like Clarity, and those those people are right. <laughs> the people people who think Futures is the best, that's like their second best record. Let's 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 agree to disagree, um, if you want. But but you know, like there's other bands like with the Replacements where it's like the, it's just so different. You'll find people who only like you know the Twin Tone stuff. You'll find people who only there's people who only like the first last two records. People who absolutely hate those last two records. People who think their best one was Pleased to Meet Me. You know, there's people who like them better with Slim. There's better people like with Bob Bob Stinson. Like it goes all over. Where Jimmy World doesn't have that as much. You know, they they have less drama around that or less like. You know, like music politics are like, oh, you think that's their best album? No, this is their best album. You know, I don't think Jimmy Eat World has that as much. But, you know, which I guess is probably a good thing. I don't think you really need that around your music. But, I mean, the multi-genre thing is just really, I think, part of what gave Clarity, you know, it, it just why it's such a strong record. Like, you know, it's because you start to dissect these. You know, it's funny because you go like, you know, why why do I love these records? Why do I love 24-Hour Revenge? Why do I love Clarity? And you start to dissect it because really at first you just go, I, really, I like the songs. But you do. You start looking and you're going, well, they did this on that record. And I also notice that, you know, both of them did this on these records. So it's like obviously those are the, you know, those are the things that I like on them. And it is. It's interesting when you start breaking them down you think of why you like them or why they're so big, you know. But both of them are no-brainers to me why I think they're cult classics now. You know, I mean, why I think people would pay a pretty penny to hear Jawbreaker do 24-hour revenge therapy front to back and really – 
you know, I don't know if people really know this, but like, you know, obviously now the 10 year anniversary tour and now it's becoming like 15 and 20 year anniversary tour, but basically just anniversary tours where bands play their albums front to back. Like, I don't know if people realize this, but like Jimmy World was really like one of the first ones to do that. I mean, there's other bands in history who've played their albums front to back, but it's like as far as an anniversary tour goes, they're like the first one I can think of back in 2009 for Clarity's 10-year tour. Like that was huge. Like that was that was humongous, including, I mean, if you just want to even get specific, in the scene, they are the first ones to do it. I mean, I can't think of anyone else. You know, I'm sure there's other people in music who have, but they're in the scene like that opened the floodgates. You know, a couple years later, including around like 2011, 2012, like all these bands started doing anniversary tours and stuff. Jimmy World was the first one to do it, you know, and you kind of respect them, too. I mean, I would have liked them to do a 20 year tour last year for a clarity because I really I like Jimmy World enough, but I hadn't heard clarity until 2011. You know, I was very like I like the radio hits, but I didn't really know much else. I think I might have had a copy of Futures at that point. But did not hear Clarity. So when they did that tour, it really wasn't, you know, like my thing. I wasn't like jumping up to go see it. Whereas like 20 year tour came around or 20 years came around. I'm like, oh, my God, I wish they'd do the tour. You know, I'd love to see this is an album you want to see performed front to back. You know, I mean, absolutely. It's an album to hear played live. You know, there's I think there's reason to do it. You know, it's it's an interesting album and just goes so many places. And it's so interesting that it would be cool, you know, to hear it converted live, you know. But I mean, just such a such a classic record. I mean, Jawbreaker and Jimmy Eat World. I don't think they ever played any shows. There was an overlap, I believe. Like Jimmy Eat World was basically becoming a band as Jawbreaker was was like on their way out. As they were breaking up, Jimmy Eat World was kind of getting together, kind of you know learning their sound and you know kind of kind of becoming who they became. But I mean, like you know, once Clarity came out, you know, Jawbreaker was already broken up for a few years. And uh, I don't know, like Jets to Brazil might have might have played some shows with like Jimmy Eat World, but I don't know that Jimmy Eat World ever played a Jawbreaker. Um, they might have now at a, at a festival. I could see that. I could see them both being on lineups for festivals the last few years, but uh, I don't know if they were ever on one. I would think the guys in Jimmy Eat World though were probably Jawbreaker fans. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that those were uh, influential albums on them. But it's also just funny, you know, really like also showing you that like what a broad spectrum like. Kind of, you know, and I, I am using it very broad, but, you know, the punk scene is. Because when I say punk, I mean, you have punk, you have pop punk, emo, like indie rock, alternative, like all these different things, like under that where it's funny because they all different have, have different, you know, reactions. Like Jimmy World was still kind of in a scene similar to Jawbreaker. Like they weren't that different, you know what I mean? Like you could see them playing shows together if they're like one-offs, you know, somewhere like they're really not that different, but it's like you see the different reactions to like being on a major label and stuff. Like you see the different reactions from their fans, you know, like I think like Jimmy World can make can take more chances as they have throughout their career where Jawbreaker didn't have that as much, you know. And I, I think that's part of what Blake was bitching about, though, in those songs is kind of kind of that, you know, a band who wanted to do different things, who, you know, were in a scene that didn't want them to, you know, who it's like who love you, who love you for what you put out. But it's like the second you try to do anything else or try to get out of that box that they put you in, they're pissed, you know. And I think I think punk's gotten better at that, you know, because I also just think everything's become like that. Like just so many different genres now that there's really not like I don't feel like the holier than now exists as much anymore. 
I just think there's so much out there, and I don't, you know, I think bands just tour with bands who kind of like that, who it's like, you know, a band who might be considered more punk or heavier than this band who's more pop punk and have more pop sensibilities, but they'll still tour together. Like, I don't, I don't think that animosity and all that really exists so much in music, which is a good thing. But it's like I also think that just documents it because you look at these albums that, you know, are now cult classics that when they came out were looked at differently, did not sell super well. I mean, like I said, Clarity, look at if Clarity sold well, they wouldn't have gotten dropped from a major label. Like Capital would have kept them if uh, Clarity sold, you know, two million records. It didn't do that, you know. And, uh, you know, funny enough with Jawbreaker, theirs, you know, that one, which sounds way less mainstream than uh, Clarity does. You know, that one got them a major labor label deal, but, I mean, also ended up, you know, imploding them, you know, I, I, or one of the things. I think a couple different things imploded them, but uh, that definitely did them no favors. And, uh, you know, just very interesting. You know, two bands. So you saw Jimmy Eat World after Clarity, you know, continue on with all these albums, still going strong all these years later, still putting out great records. I mean, Surviving was one of my favorite records of last year. And you have other bands like Jawbreaker, who it's like it killed them. You know, we got four albums out of them, and that's all she wrote. You know, maybe we'll get something again, but still, you know, there's like a 20-year gap in between, you know, new music, at least. Actually, it's been over that now because Dear You came out in, I believe, 96. I want to say 96 or 97. Dear You came out. Probably 96, because I think they were broken up by 97. So, I mean, but you think of that, and yeah, I mean, that was their last album, so that's more like 24 years ago. It's been quite a while since we've got any new music from Jawbreaker, but I mean, I would love to hear what a Jawbreaker record sounds like, you know, 24, 25 years later. That would be, that would be extremely interesting, but uh, that is going to be the episode for this week. I just wanted to kind of come on and, you know, kind of talk about talk about this. We had a different, we had a whole different episode for you. But like I said, you'll never hear that one. <laughs> but uh, I think this one kind of came out better. This one's a little more coherent, I'll say, than the uh, than the last one. We had a we had an interesting time with said guest, and uh, who knows, said guest might even be on it at, at, at another time. So won't throw anyone under the bus but I really did enjoy this I mean talking about these records you know I mean two records that really kind of come from the same genre but are kind of distant enough you know what I mean but I feel like most people still love them both you know I feel like it's not crazy to find someone who loves both those records I think as time has went on too it's allowed you to maybe when they came out like say in the 90s it may have been blasphemous to be, you know, a Jawbreaker fan, but like Jimmy World, like you may get some shit for that. Whereas now people don't, you know, people don't do that. I think they also realize how similar they are, you know, which I've always felt that way. And, you know, I do that like on, on the radio show. It's like I've, if you look at the stuff I play, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, sure they're bands who are different, but it's like I, I see commonalities in like Big Star and Jawbreaker and the replacements and the Get Up Kids and like, you know, even even like Blink-182 or something. Like, I think you can find things in there where you go, okay, these bands aren't the same. You know, I'm not saying they're, like, totally the same, but I'm like, if you like this sound, I don't get how you want it like this. You know, like, like there, you can you can make it coherent enough where it makes sense, and you go, no, these two work together. And I think Jawbreaker and uh, Jimmy World are that. You know, I mean, two bands where, okay, they don't sound identical, 
But it's like if you like one, you probably would like the other. And I mean, the other thing, too, if you're listening to this and have never heard 24-hour revenge therapy or clarity, I mean, you got to go listen to those records. You know, if you're, if you're new to those bands, those are great introductions to the bands. I think I think if you like those records, go ahead and, you know, check out the rest of them, though. I mean, Jimmy Eat World's a pretty damn big band, and, you know, Jawbreaker's not super small either. So I would assume you've probably heard them, and a high five to you for having good taste in music. But if you've not heard them, go check them out. You are not going to regret it. And uh, and also credit to you for listening to this, for, uh, you know, for albums that you, that you haven't heard. I, I give you credit for uh, checking this out. And uh, thank you very much for checking out the Power Chord Hour podcast. But like I said, that's going to be the episode for this week. Very happy anniversary to both of those. Uh, 24-hour revenge therapy turning 26 this year. And uh, Clarity turning 21. Clarity is old enough to drink now. And uh, 24-hour revenge therapy is only a year older than me, actually. So uh, I, don't, I don't know which one of us is aging better. A 24-hour revenge has aged pretty damn well. So I, I don't know. I'll leave that up to you guys. You can be the judge of that. But thank you very much for checking out the show this week. Uh, stay connected with us. We are online at Power Chord Radio on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're on Spotify. I put up playlists from the radio show every week. If you want to hear what I'm playing on the radio show, but uh, you missed it, you can go check out our Spotify playlist. And I put up other special playlists too. You Normally at least one playlist a week. But I've also been uh, putting up my favorite songs the last decade. We're up to uh, 2015 right now. Uh, as you're listening to this, 2016 is probably going to be out in the next few days. And, uh, yeah, check that out. Maybe you missed some music this last decade or maybe you forgot about some stuff. So I'll school you on that. But check us out there. We're also – I guess we're on SoundCloud too. And I don't put the podcast up there, but some of our old interviews are there. I mean, if that's your thing, if you're ever on SoundCloud – and uh, for whatever reason, you're just on SoundCloud board, look up Power Chord Hour. And uh, I don't know, like a handful of our interviews are on there. We ran out of space, so I quit putting things on there because I don't think people use SoundCloud a ton for that. Probably for podcasts more. I probably should put these podcasts up. Let me know that as well. If you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, let me know because if it's a place where I think people will check them out, maybe I'll start putting them up there. But hit me up, PowerCordHour at gmail.com. You know, I mean, I love doing this show. Anyone who listens, I really do appreciate it and want, you know, want them as part of the show. So let me know stuff like that. You know, to use SoundCloud to listen to it. Let me know. I mean, also, what are, what are your favorite 90s records? I mean, obviously, it was a very 90s-centric uh, episode talking about two, two of my favorite records of the decade. But uh, let me know some of your favorite 90s records that you think you think like, you know, didn't get the credit they deserve. You know, maybe weren't the best sellers, but you think were the best albums of the 90s, you know. Like neither of these albums were the best sellers of their years, you know. Clarity didn't make Clarity probably wasn't even in, in the top 500 best-selling records of 1999, you know. Same with same with Jawbreaker. You know, so it's like, tell me some of your favorite, like, underrated records of the 90s that you think, you know, should just be bigger. Everyone should check out. But hit me up, powercordhour at gmail.com. I also have some new Powercord Hour pins. So uh, hit me up on that email, and uh, I'll send you some absolutely free. I mean, I have a few Powercord Hour t-shirts left, so if you want one of those, I I have, like, two or three left. So uh, if you want one, hit me up. You can have one totally free. But until next episode, I'll be back next week with a February rundown for you. Let you know the music came out this this, uh, month. Uh, play you some new music, all that good stuff. That'll be next week. But until then, for the Power Court Hour podcast, I'm Anthony Merchant, and thank you so much for listening.